0: Good morning, church. My throat's a little bit raspy there because I love singing praises to the Lord. Can you guys all hear me from the front row when I'm singing? I'll have to sing louder. It's a joy to be with you this morning. If you can grab a Bible, please open it up to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 20 in our time this morning. If you grab the Bible in front of you, underneath the chair, it should be on page 979, I believe. This is the Word of God. It's inspired, it's inerrant, it's true, it's authoritative, it's good for me and it's good for you. Let's read the word of God together. Apostle Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are all powerful and all sovereign. You are the one who has worked immeasurably great power To provide us with salvation through your Son. By the power of your Spirit, Mary conceived and gave birth to your eternal Son, our Lord Jesus. By the power of your Spirit, he preached and taught and prophesied. By the power of your Spirit, he performed miracles. By the power of your Spirit, he conquered sin. By the power of your Spirit, he resisted all the temptations of the devil. By the power of your spirit, Lord, he conquered death and you raised him by your power and seated him at your right hand far above all rule and all authority and all other powers and dominions and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You have placed your son as the power and authority over all. And in doing so, Lord, you fulfilled your promises to provide a Savior for the world. You showed us your grace. You showed us your mercy. You showed us your power. You showed us that you are mighty to save. And you took a people, Lord, us. And you transferred us out of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Lord, you rescued us from slavery to evil powers. Even though we had participated in their rebellion, even though we had grieved you and sinned against you and rebelled against you, Lord, you and your grace saved us by your power through your Son and by your Spirit. We thank you for that great salvation. Lord, may you protect your people by your power. May you sanctify your people by your power. May you keep your people, Lord. And May you strengthen them. May they be dependent upon you today and every day, Lord, that you give them under the sun until your son comes. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Reading this passage, you cannot help but notice something very obvious. And that is this, that the world is not one large, giant, safe place. We look at this passage, we see that this world is not a large, giant, safe space. It's a a, a, a space that is under conflict, a space that is marked by war, a space where there's conflict and there's attacks and there's defense and there's all sorts of uh, activity taking place in a battle between light and darkness. There's no place on the earth that you can run to to avoid this conflict. And those who make it to heaven will only do so because... They stood firm because they took a stand and because they stood firm. We find ourselves on a battlefield. We find ourselves surrounded by darkness. We find ourselves with evil pressing in against us. And I think it's not much different than how David describes it in his day. He says, "On every side, the wicked prowl; as vileness is exalted among the children of man." The way of this world, the way of our culture, is one of vileness and evil. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that before we were saved by God, before we put our faith in Christ and became his children, that we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, and we were just following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that spirit who is at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul says that was true of all of us. But God did a great work in us. In his great mercy and in his great grace, he saved us. And he brought us out of darkness and made us light. But when he did that, he did not take us out of the battle. No. We're still in it. And we have one job. Christian, you have one job. That is to stand firm. To stand firm. There is a day coming when all evil will be conquered and subdued, and will Christ will return in glory and reign over everything and usher in everlasting peace and righteousness. But that day is not here yet. Until that day comes, Christian, you have one job. Stand firm. Be strong. Withstand. Notice that this is mentioned four times. Verse 11, that you may be able to stand. Verse 13, that you may withstand and having done all to stand firm. And then again in verse 14, stand. That's our one job. Stand firm. I love uh, Charles Talbert's commentary uh, on what it means to stand firm. He, He mentions this in his commentary on Ephesians And he describes the importance of standing. He says that the Roman military went into battle intending to win. The the normal formation consisted of the primary force, the infantry, with the cavalry on either side. The cavalry's purposes were twofold, to prevent flanking movements and to move ahead and cut down the enemy if they turned to retreat or flee. The The preferred tactic was to use infantry to strike the opponent's weakest point hear this, and cause a break in their line, a break that would scatter them. And since the primary goal was to break through the enemy's line without having one's own line broken, it is easy to see how important it was for one's troops to stand. In any military encounter, the soldier who did not stand in the face of battle endangered the whole enterprise. A little bit later he says the idea of standing then is by itself neither strictly defensive or strictly offensive in a military context. The goal of an army is to get the opponents to break and run, preferably without a fight. So a soldier who does not stand, who does not retain his place in formation as his army attacks, puts the whole battle in doubt. We have one job as believers in Jesus Christ, and that is to stand firm. And we have to say that that's an easier you know, thing to, to say than to, to actually do. We understand that when, when God can, saved us, that, that he made us his soldiers, and we now are soldiers that make up a battle line in our generation and we are those whom he is using to, uh, to spread the gospel. And the enemy is pressing forth against us, looking to tempt us, looking to distract us, looking to render us weak and discouraged and fearful so that we will turn back and not stand firm. So that the line will break. But we must resist. We're not out of this battle until the Lord calls us home. And so we have to hold the line. Whatever comes our way, we will stand. But how are we to do this? I think what Paul gives us in this passage are three activities every believer must be continually engaged in so that we will be strengthened by the Lord and stand firm against the schemes of the devil. How do we do this? How are we going to stand firm? The first activity every believer must be continually engaged in so that we will be strengthened by the Lord and stand firm against the schemes of the devil is to stay suited in the armor of God. Christians, stay suited in the armor of God. Paul says in verse 10 and 11, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, he says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So hear it clearly. You will not stand firm if you are not strengthened by the Lord and in the Lord. And you will not be strengthened by the Lord and in the Lord if you do not put on the whole armor of God. You have not just the Uh, the devil who wants to destroy you, but you also have his servants, you have his ministers, you have his demons that are all wrestling, seeking to attack you and undermine you. Look at how outnumbered you are, you could say, when you you see this just list of, of evil powers that are mentioned here and the repeating word against, 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 against. Satan and his minions want to destroy you. They want to cause you to flee. They do not want, they want to do everything to make sure that you don't stand. And you won't stand, it's very clear, if you are not strengthened and you do not put on the armor of God. It's interesting. The word so in we have here for strengthen, to be strong, as the ESV translates it, is, is, is a, a command, but it's also It's also passive, and so I think it's fitting to to speak of this as as a command to be strengthened, which which clues us into the fact that the power that we need for this battle is not in us. This power is not in you. This power is not in me, and that's why the verse goes on to say, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of, of your might. No, his might. You need the might of Christ. You need the power of God that was at work in Christ, that raised him from from death to life, that seated him at the right hand of God. And without that power working in you, you will not stand firm. You must seek that power. You must be strengthened by that power. Well, how do I do that? Paul says, you put on the whole armor of God. You put on the whole armor of God. There's six pieces that Paul will mention, or we might say five pieces of armor and one weapon. The source of Paul's metaphor here is uh, likely the equipment of a Roman soldier in his day, possibly even the Roman soldier that was guarding his jail cell. Who knows? Could have been sitting there praying for the saints, writing the book of Ephesians, looking over at the, the Roman soldier and is like, that reminds me of some other Old Testament passages I know. I remember that passage in Isaiah. I remember about the breastplate of righteousness. I remember about all these things. This is what believers need. This is how they put on the power of God. They seek what God provides they seek what God has given God's provision to equip them to be protected and there is no protection outside of these things there is no way to be successful in battle without these things but these things are given to us as a gift from God and so we take them and we wear them and having wore them we stand and we stand firm we must stay suited in the armor of God. We have to wear it all. We have to wield it all. And if we do, then we will withstand it all. Let's consider that first piece together. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. And he says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Paul in this passage doesn't specifically mention a belt, but what he talks about is girding up your loins with truth. Now, We don't really use that phrase too much, so belt of truth gets the same idea. It's really helpful uh, for us English speakers. But but to gird up your loins, Typically, you would have a long robe, and then you would take that robe and you'd gather it in the front. Then you'd bring it down underneath you, pull it into two along the sides, and then tie it across like that, so that your whole waist area with that long flowing robe that you can't really run around a lot or you don't want to fight, you know, without hanging around your feet is now secured around your waist, and you're ready to engage in battle or you're ready to work. That's what this idea of girding up your loins. With truth, or the phrase girding up your loins refers to. And it sort of becomes an idiom, a way of speaking about being ready. Being ready to engage, being ready to work. And here, Paul says that we are to stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. He's speaking of truth as a, a quality that we're supposed to wrap around ourselves that gets us ready to engage in battle. And he pulls this, I think, from Isaiah eleven five, which speaks of uh, the Messiah when he comes, that his righteousness shall be a, a belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And so we see that this is a quality that believers are to put on. And we know that we need this, and Satan is seeking to undermine this. We know that Satan and his, his demons have schemes, and one of those schemes is to undermine the truth. It's to attack the truth. And Christians have to stay suited with the belt of truth. Satan is the liar. He is the father of lies. And Jesus says that there's no truth in him. When he speaks lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he's the father and the father of lies. He's the deceiver. He's the slanderer. He's the one that wants you to believe everything that is false. And he is the one working hard to assure that that happens. So what can you do? You need to make sure that you have girded your loins with truth. You need the truth wrapped about you. You need to be ready, and it's the truth that gets you ready. And as Paul mentioned earlier in Ephesians, that every Christian knows this. Every Christian has already received this. You've been taught in Christ as the truth is in Jesus. We're not. We're not left wondering what's the truth, or or if there's truth, or we know that that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. And so, whatever God, whatever the Lord Jesus says, whatever He does, we know the truth, and we put that on, and it prepares us. There's all sorts of false religions and ideologies and traditions of men that vie for our attention and demand our submission, and they do so in subtle ways by getting us to adopt their presuppositions. And so they'll teach a lot of different things that, that sound good and, and look right and seem on the surface like this is true, but then they'll, they'll, they'll later down the road be removing something, taking some other part of God's word out. And so they'll replace parts of the truth with their, their own views of things. They'll undermine uh, how, what, what sort of things the Bible says are and exists, or how we can know these things or how we should live. And every time that that's done, the truth is obscured, lies are created, and it leads people astray. We have to gird ourselves with truth. And believers are to know the truth. Believers are to be set free by the truth. They are to walk in the truth. And they are to be sincere and humble as they seek to maintain the truth in their lives. Paul goes on to next mention the breastplate of righteousness. Satan does not only seek to undermine the truth, but also he wants to undermine righteousness. The believer has, as Pastor Kenny mentioned in his, uh, in his communion message, the believer has the righteousness of Christ imputed or reckoned or counted to them by faith in Jesus. Meaning that no matter what sins they've committed, if they've called out to the Lord to have mercy on them and they believed in the Lord, then they have been considered righteous with the perfect righteousness of Christ. And so they're declared to be righteous or justified. And so that's the idea of imputed righteousness. But then, Pastor Kenny, as he also mentioned, that imputed righteousness that we have then works out itself practically in our lives. Not perfectly now, but, but in such a way that our lives are then practically righteous as well. And I think Satan wants to tear down both of those. He wants you to doubt that, that Christ's death on the cross was fully sufficient to pay for all of your sins, that, that, that his death was not enough to make you righteous and keep you righteous. And also, I think he wants to undermine your practical righteousness, and he's doing this all the time. He's looking for that area. He's looking for that weakness. He's looking in that area of your life where you're already opening up yourself to sin. He's looking for that spot where you're already in your heart being drawn away and enticed by evil desires. And then he's just going to bring that over and entice you with it. And try to get you into sin. He is plotting and scheming to draw you down the road of compromise all the time. He's whispering in your ear, it's not a big deal. This sin won't hurt anyone. You don't need to confess this to anyone. You don't need to shed light on this sin. All those other Christians have sin too. And so you go deeper and you wander further and you harden your heart more and joy is sapped from you and you feel a sense of of guilt. Thoughts of hypocrisy steal your strength. You're becoming entangled in unrighteousness. This is exactly what Satan wants. You forgot to put on the breastplate of righteousness and keep it on and let your righteousness protect you. And run away from every moment, every trap, every site of compromise in your life. You know, I think Joseph is a a, a wonderful example of someone whose practical righteousness protected him. Potiphar's wife called out for him, tried to get Joseph to sleep with her. Joseph spiritually stood his ground. (laughs) But physically, he, he bounced. He was out of there. He ran away quickly. Because his righteousness was on his chest like a breastplate. Your righteousness will keep you from much sin. And when your righteousness keeps you from much sin, it'll also keep Satan from using your sin and the lives of other people as an occasion to help them and to try to convince them to blaspheme your God. Because you see, when you sin and you commit unrighteousness, the enemy likes to tell people that's what they're all like. Where are they, where are they learning that from? They try, he tries to get people to blaspheme God. He has schemes, and so we have to be on guard. We have to have the belt of truth fastened. We have to have the breastplate of righteousness on our chest. But more than that, we also, as Paul says here, need to have for our shoes the readiness given by the gospel of peace the type of shoes that a roman soldier would wear would have leather straps that would wrap around the feet and, and it'd be sort of like a half boot it would and it the the it would wrap around up to the the shin and paul says here that we are to have our 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 feet wrapped with the readiness given by the gospel of peace, and this 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 idea is 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 probably uh, pulled a little bit from Isaiah 52 verse seven, which combines the mention of the good news, the gospel, peace, uh, and feet says this, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You see, Satan hates it when people are ready for God to come. The good news that is proclaimed in Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 2 that these heralds are supposed to get up and to go and to proclaim is the good news that God is coming. The king is on his way. And all who will repent and all who will put their faith in them will, be, will have prepared themselves and be ready for his arrival. This is what the good news of, of the gospel of peace does. It gets us ready. We're ready, we'll be, we're ready to be at peace with God when he comes. We've already prepared for that by repentance and humbling ourselves before him and joining the crew of people who are all preparing and declaring to others to get ready for his arrival. The Lord is coming, and Satan seeks to undermine this readiness. How so? Spyro. Telling people, well, where is he? Y'all been saying he's coming for a long time. Where is he? You don't need to get ready now. You can get ready later. Surely there's a lot of time for you to prepare for the Lord and to repent and to put your faith in him and start following. You can do that after you've already had a bunch of fun in your life. After you've already spent a lot of years pursuing everything that you want to pursue. You don't need to do all that now. You can, you can do it later. In fact, why are you being so zealous about all this? Why don't you just, why don't you just chill, relax, do anything, but, but have this sense of, of urgency? In fact, your urgency annoys me and annoys the people around you. So stop it, Christian. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I want to be ready. If the king's coming, I want to know it. If the king's coming, I want to be ready to welcome him. I want to be on that welcome crew. If the king's coming, if he's coming on a Sunday, I want to be in church. (laughs) If he's coming, I want to be right here with the saints, ready to welcome him. Satan seeks to undermine readiness, and so we need to strap on our feet the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace says, get ready now. Do not wait. Today is the day of salvation. He can come at any moment. Are you prepared and are you ready? And are you getting others ready? So strap on your feet with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. This leads to the next item, which is the shield of faith. Satan loves to attack and undermine faith. The devil hates when Christians have faith. Because as Paul mentions here, look what he says in verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I mean, what's more frustrating if you want to send, you know, flaming darts at a person to destroy them? What's what's, what's, What's more annoying... And frustrating, than seeing those darts hit a shield and fall to the ground to no effect. Satan wants to undermine faith. and it's faith that is one of the most important virtues of a believer to put on. And we see in Psalm 28 verse seven, "The Lord is my strength and my shield. in him my heart trusts, and I am helped. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped." You see, it's by faith that we lay hold of the promises of God that then assure us of of his purposes and his plans. And no matter what the enemy tries to shoot at us, we are protected because we have taken up the shield of faith. Whether these, are attacks of the, uh, whether these attacks are, as one commentator puts it, unholy thoughts, temptations, blasphemies, fear, false teaching, oppression, doubt, despair, discouragement, distrust, discontentment, worry, envy, pride. Uh, all of these are meant to consume us and ultimately wipe us out. But faith has a powerful way to function as a shield. And blocked from the fiery assaults of the devil and his demons. He wants to keep us in fear. He wants to keep us afraid. He wants to keep us from fully trusting in God. And so he'll, he'll try to do things and tell us things and say, oh, nothing's going to change. You're not going to win. You're not going to overcome this sin. You're going to be made foolish if you, if you keep following him. Nothing different is going to happen. Uh, nothing's going to change. Look at your track record. Look at your past. Look at how you failed. Look at how, where was God when, when, when that happened. Satan wants to do all he can to get the eyes of faith off of God and off of God's word. But faith is a shield. Looks to God and looks to his promises to protect the believer. When Satan says there's going to be no growth, no victory, and God will not deliver and will not rescue, and that God, if He really loved you, wouldn't even let you have come to this point, you hold up the shield of faith. You look to God and you remind yourself that He is with me, He is for me, He is my shepherd. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He's the one leading. He's the one guiding. He's the one working all things together for my good. He's the one who has predestined me for good works. And those good works even involve suffering for the gospel. Even being martyred for the gospel. He will deliver me and I will glorify him. I have need of endurance. His grace, Pastor Jeff mentioned this one, his grace is sufficient for me because his power is made perfect in weakness. When I am weak, he is strong. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. I will not perish. No one can snatch me out of his hand. He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. So Christian, lift up your shield. Keep it up. Hold it by your side. Walk by faith and not by sight. This leads next to the helmet of salvation. Paul says, and take up the helmet of salvation. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he also mentions uh, uh, something similar. He says uh, to, to the believers there, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And so uh, if, if Paul's meaning the same thing here when he speaks about the helmet of salvation, then it's the idea is the hope of salvation. And this really is the unshakable confidence that God is the God who delivers and the God who saves. And that, that, that no matter what happens to you, he will ultimately take care of you and save you. And I think a, a, a beautiful example of putting on the helmet of salvation, of the hope of salvation, is given to us in Exodus chapter 14. You know that the Israelites have been led by Moses out of Egypt, Pharaoh lets them go after the ten plagues. Then we, have, uh, then we have Pharaoh change his mind and decide that, you know what? We're actually going to go after them and pursue them and kill them all. And so this is what the, uh, the passage tells us. It says that the Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army... And overtook them, meaning they, 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 they caught up uh, to where they were at. They're ready and in battle position. And it says that when Pharaoh drew near, the, the people, speaking of the people of Israel, lifted up their eyes. And they saw the Egyptians marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, It is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in this wilderness. I mean, you can't think of a, a, a more terrifying situation to be in. Pharaoh's about to overtake you. All of his armies, all his chariots, all, his, all, all of his powers... And and your people also are are then attacking you and and saying that that this is your idea and this is a terrible idea and we were better off without you. We should have just stayed in Egypt as servants. You can get us all killed, Moses. What does Moses do? He puts on the helmet of salvation. He puts on the helmet of the hope of salvation. And he says to them, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord. He says, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. It it doesn't matter what I see here, it's what I know about God, it's what I know about His power to save, it's what I know about Him being the God of salvation, it's about what I know about His promises. And because I know those things, we can stand firm. And we will see the salvation of the Lord. So keep your helmet on, Christian. Keep the hope of salvation on your head or else you will not stand firm. I love uh, William Gurnall and his Christian in complete armor, which is something like, I don't know, 1,500 pages just on these 10 verses we're going through. Uh, He mentions how the believers to take up the helmet of salvation and never to lay it down until God takes it off his helmet and puts a crown of glory in its place. love that. When that hope of salvation is realized we need not fear. Put on the hope of salvation and stand firm. Next we see the weapon mentioned to to, we're not only to take up the helmet of salvation, but the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And Satan hates the Word of God. Satan hates Christians who have the sword of the Spirit, which Paul says is the Word of God. The, the Spirit uh, there's different ways you could think about the, the relationship between uh, the, the spirit and the, the, uh, the, the sword being called the sword of the spirit. could be that the spirit is the source of that, of that sword or it's the spirit uh, who is wielding that sword. Uh, either way you think about it, our power is in this weapon right here. And Satan and his minions hate the word of God and they hate the Christian who knows the word of God. Because the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it is like light and truth that pierces through darkness that darkness cannot overcome. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. You see, God's word is the truth. God's word teaches us what, is, what, what it, uh, righteousness looks like. And how to obtain it. It is the Word that gets people ready. It is the Word that gives people faith. It is the object. The Word is the object of our faith and the content of our faith. It's the Word that, when you believe it, grants salvation. What an unparalleled power right here in our hands. And so we must keep it, we must hold it, we must must take it up. The Word refutes doctrines of demons. The word exposes the lives of the evil one. The word shatters the strongholds of Satan. The word tramples the traditions of men. We need the word of God. We need the sword of the spirit. We need Christians who know it and who wield it and who use it. I can guarantee you that Satan wants to work with all the powers that he can to make sure that you are as biblically illiterate as possible. He wants to make sure that you know the the least amount of scripture, that you think about scripture as least as possible. He wants to make sure that your life is filled with all sorts of other things, that your mind is filled with all sorts of other things, anything. It doesn't even have to be overtly bad or evil, so long as he can keep you from having your mind on the Word of God. So he can keep you from studying the Word of God, from delighting in the Word of God, from understanding the Word of God, from sharpening each other with the word of God from counseling and encouraging and building each other up and attacking and tearing down false ideologies and false religions and false views of the world with the word of God you can rest assured that he wants to do everything as possible in his his power to make sure that you do not take up your sword do you remember what Jesus said? Have you not read? One of his statements to his opponents, have you never read? And do you remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan, what Jesus did? Quoted scripture. He picked up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And, and notice what Satan was also doing. Satan was using the word of God, twisting and perverting the word of God to try to deceive the son of God. But the son of God had the word of God on his mind and on his lips. And he then refuted that with the scriptures and with a proper understanding of those scriptures. That's how you fight back against the temptation of Satan. And So Satan is seeking to undermine our use of God's word all the time. We need to take up the sword. We need to study the word, delight in it, and use it. We need to stay suited in God's armor. Let's move now to the second. That's that's the biggest point, if you didn't notice. But the second point, there's two more activities that Paul hits on, that believers must be continually engaged in So that they will be strengthened by the Lord and stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That first one was stay suited in God's armor. And the second one now is stay praying in the spirit of God. Stay suited in the armor of God, the whole armor of God. If you want to be strengthened, if you want to stand firm, you have to stay suited. But more than that, you need to also stay praying in the spirit. Paul moves In verse 18, it says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. When Paul mentions praying in the Spirit, I think he has in mind what he's already communicated in chapter 2, verse 18. Paul said that through Christ, we both have access in one Spirit To the Father. All true prayer is prayer that is taking place through and by the power of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is not only also interceding for us and praying for us while we pray, but also by the power of the Spirit, any uh, genuine, intelligible prayer or request or praise or confession or, or anything good comes. By this working of the Spirit's power. Any hypocritical prayer, any selfish prayer, any self-seeking prayer, those things are not examples of praying in the Spirit of God. Seeking to to pray for stuff just to get stuff so that it satisfy my own fleshly desires, not praying in the Spirit of God but praying that Lord's will be done, praying that God would strengthen me, praying that, 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 that God would help these believers to be bold in their faith, praying that, that, that people would preach the gospel and stand firm in the faith, praying and confessing sin, praying praises, uh, t- uh, uh, words of, of praise to God, all of this is praying by the Spirit. And we are to stay praying if we're gonna stand. You have to know that Satan and his demons love to undermine prayer in the life of a believer. And here, maybe if you're anything like me, this is is where you've, you've succumbed to the enemy's schemes more than any other. By not praying at all times, by not offering all types of prayer, by not being persevering, not being alert, not continuing to pray and to pray, and to pray, and to run to the Lord, and to seek his power, and to seek his help, and to seek his guidance. Satan loves to undermine prayer. He wants you to pray as little as possible. He wants you to, to offer as a, 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 the, the weakest prayers possible. If you are gonna pray, he wants you to pray not in the spirit, He wants you to to fret and to fear and to grumble. He doesn't want you to ask God. He wants you to just covet and be angry and be bitter. He doesn't want you having open lines of communication with an all-powerful God, asking for his protection and his provision and his power. He does not want that. And so again, he'll distract you. He'll bring all sorts of things to put in your life. He'll, He'll convince you that you have other things that are of a greater priority than prayer. And we fall for it. And sometimes we notice that it's been hours, it's been days, it's been weeks. Since I follow the example of Christ, of just getting up early and seeking the Lord, sitting with my Father and praying, of finding a secluded place as Jesus so often did in his ministry and praying. of praying for the saints, praying for my neighbors, praying for my children, praying for my pastors, praying for my brothers and sisters in Christ, praying for for missions uh, to go forth in the world, praying for uh, God to do a work through us and to save the souls of our unbelieving family members and friends. So often we do not persevere in prayer and it's exactly what Satan wants us to do. And we end up, being deficient in the duty of prayer. And this week, as I was thinking about this, I came across Jonathan Edwards has a sermon on, this is the title of the sermon. It is, this is convicting to think about it, the title. It's called Hypocrites Deficient in the Duty of Prayer. If you want to get your heart stabbed, you can go ahead and read that. Let me, let me give you just a quote. Jonathan Edwards says. How is a life, but how is a life in a great measure prayerless, consistent with a holy life? To lead a holy life is to lead a life devoted to God, a life of worshiping and serving God, a life consecrated to the service of God. But how does he lead such a life who does not so much as maintain the duty of prayer? How can such a man be said to walk by the Spirit and to be a servant of the Most High God? A holy life is a life of faith. And the life that true Christians live in the world, they live by faith in the Son of God. But who can believe that a man lives by faith who lives without prayer? Which is the natural expression of faith. Prayer is as natural an expression of faith as breathing is of life. And to say that a man lives a life of faith and yet lives a prayerless life is every whit as inconsistent and incredible as to say that a man lives without breathing. A prayerless life is so far from being a holy life that it is a profane life. He that lives so lives like a heathen who called not on God's name who calleth not on God's name. He that lives a prayerless life lives without God in the world. This is why Paul says pray all the time. Persevere in praying. I'm tired, but pray. I'm busy, but pray. Pray for all things. Pray prayers of thanksgiving. Pray prayers of praise. Pray for other people. Pray for the saints. Pray prayer is how we access and request the power of God. And this is why Paul prays. Look at what he does at different points in Ephesians. But back in chapter 3, verse 16, may God, out of the riches of His glory, grant you to be filled with power through His Spirit in your inner being. This is why Paul says, God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Paul is praying believers. He is praying for the saints. He's praying for the Ephesians. He's praying for us who read these letters so that we would experience the power of God, that we might be moved to be people of prayer too, that we would watch, that we'd be expectant, that we'd be looking for how God is answering those prayers. May we stay praying in the Spirit, one passage that I've always thought was a challenge was Acts chapter 6, verse 4. It's a passage where the, the apostles, uh, they, 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 they gather uh, deacons, and the apostles say that we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And, and in my heart's desire, not rightly thinking about things the way the Lord does... I want to flip those. And I want to make most of my life about, about preaching the word. I want it to be the apostles devoted themselves to preaching the word and to prayer. But that's not what the text is. The text of the apostles say we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and to preaching the word. Prayer comes first. And in fact, it's the power that preaching is supposed to flow out of. You should never want someone to stand up and preach to you if they haven't prayed. Like, what are, you, what are you doing with your life if you stand up to preach and you don't pray first? You're not rightly assessing the situation. You're not adequately understanding your powerlessness, how uh, you have no ability to affect any good unless the Holy Spirit does the work. We have to pray, we have to stay praying in the Spirit. Are you praying? Are you praying? What what would happen if our whole church was, was a church that was just persevering in prayer for each other? What would happen to our evangelism encounters with other people? What would happen to our our works of mercy? What would happen to all the good works and needs that that we're meeting in the church? What would happen to our witness? What would happen, uh, uh, I think what would happen is we would start shining more and more bright and hotter and hotter with more power, glorifying Christ as we show that we are a humble, needy, dependent people on God and his power and his spirit and seeking it through prayer. And notice that Paul is asking the church that he's writing to, to do what for him? To pray for him. Look at how he closes this out. And this will lead to our last point as well. But he says, to pray with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints... And also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And this leads to the last activity. We want to stay suited in the armor of God, stay praying by the Spirit of God, and stay proclaiming the Son of God. Stay proclaiming the Son of God. Notice that Paul, even an apostle, is asking for prayer, for boldness, for spiritual power, wisdom, insight, to preach, to proclaim the Son, to fulfill the task that has been been given to him. I love Acts chapter 19. 19. And here Paul, here Paul says, chapter 20, excuse me. Paul says that he went house to house in his ministry. He set an example how he did not shrink back from declaring anything that was profitable, but teaching in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, and now I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Hear this, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Satan hates it when we preach the word. Satan hates it when Christ is preached. And so he wants to do everything that he can in his power to undermine the proclamation of God's word. He wants to intimidate the messengers. He wants them to be afraid. He wants them to fear man. He wants them to be concerned about what might happen to their reputation, what might happen to their life, what might happen to their job. He wants them to be concerned about all these things so that they will just not say anything. So that they won't proclaim. So that they won't open their mouths. And then if they do open their mouths, that that, that what comes out because of their fear is such a muddled and confused mess that no one is going to be able to understand it. Or it's not rightly, clearly articulating the needs of the gospel and what God requires. This is why Paul prays for boldness. Boldness. He asks for the church to pray for him for this so that he can preach the gospel clearly and freely with boldness. And he says here, I love it, as I ought to speak. Remember, he says here that he's an ambassador in chains. So where is he as he's asking for this prayer for boldness? He's already in prison for the gospel. He's already in prison for the gospel. And and you can think, no, now's a nice time to like, to you know, calm down, Paul, let's not, let's not keep preaching. You don't know what could happen to you. I mean, you're already in prison. Paul says, pray for me that I may declare the gospel boldly, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The gospel should be declared with boldness. Paul say elsewhere that I'm bound, but the word of God is not bound. Wherever you are, doesn't matter. Same task. Boldly proclaim the gospel. Satan wants us quiet. Satan wants us as mute heralds, which doesn't make any sense. He wants us to keep our mouths shut. He wants us to not pray for each other, and especially not pray for each other for boldness. Because he does not want a bold proclamation of the gospel, and so he's going to do what he can to make sure that we don't do that. Have you succumbed to his schemes? Are you proclaiming the gospel? Are you preaching the Son of God? Are you relying on the power of the Spirit? Are you seeking the power of the Spirit so that, that, that your mouth might be opened with boldness? to with love and respect and gentleness make the gospel known to others. We need to suit up with the whole armor. We need to be constantly praying in the spirit and we need to be proclaiming the son of God. I wanna close here thinking about 1 Samuel chapter 30. And there in that place, David had his army with him. And they, they went to, uh, to actually go help the Philistines in a battle. And David went and took all his men to offer help. And the Philistines end up saying, no, dude, we're not gonna take your help. Like, go home. So David then takes his whole army and he heads back home where, where him and his army and their wives and their children were all, in, uh, all camped at, at a place called Ziklag. And when they got there, They were horrified by what they saw. The whole camp had been raided. Everybody had been taken, or everybody was missing. The whole place was burned down. All that was was left was just the tiny remnants and fiery, smoldering charcoals of what was once their camp. They had lost everything. Everything was gone and missing from them in that moment. Their wives, their children, all their belongings. And what happens is they weep. They weep. It says that they lifted up their voices and they wept till they had no more strength. It says David was greatly distressed because the the people, his army, his soldiers spoke of stoning him. David, this is your fault. We should have never been trying to go and help these other people and come back and leave ourselves vulnerable to attack. And now look, we have nothing. You've blown the whole thing, David. said that all the people were bitter in their soul, each for his sons and his daughters. But the turning point is this in the text. It says that But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He would turn to the Lord in that moment. He would pray to the Lord in that moment. He would inquire of the Lord in that moment. He would strap on the whole armor of God in that moment. And God would be gracious and grant him the ability to go and to find the, 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 the Amalekites and to destroy them. And it says that they recovered from the Amalekites everything. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything else that had been taken. Situation was devastating. It was terrifying. It looked like there's no possible hope. And yet David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And he turned to the Lord and he prayed. And God looked upon that poor man and answered his cry. David put on the whole armor of God. He prayed in the spirit. And he proclaimed exactly what they were going to do and should do. And they trusted the Lord and the Lord delivered them. It's going to take the whole armor of God for you all to be faithful to the Lord in the face of everything that our culture is bringing against us. It's going to take the whole armor of God. It's going to take the, 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 the prayer. It's going to take all the, all the prayers that we could possibly pray in order to stand firm and to keep fighting and to not give up and to not just, just act like, you know, we're, 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 we cannot continue anymore. We need the full armor of God. We need it to live for Christ. We need it to raise our children in a vile culture. We need it to proclaim when people hate hearing the gospel. We need it to be a church that is fervent and faithful to the task that God has given to us. We need the whole armor of God to be faithful in our homes and faithful in our marriages and faithful in our families. We need the whole armor of God when we're attacked by the world and attacked by the culture. We need the whole armor of God when we're facing death and we're facing disease and when we're facing the enemy's taunts and the enemy's attacks and and all that the enemy is trying to do to undermine us and our faith in the Lord. We need the whole armor of God. We need to pray. We need to preach. If we'll put it all on and wield it all, we will withstand it all. Not because of our power, but because we've been strengthened by the strength of His might. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's powerful, Lord. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that it's righteous. Thank you, Lord, that it gets us ready. Thank you, Lord, that it is is able to cut and to slice and to divide and to protect. Thank you, Lord, that you have equipped us and given us everything we need to stand firm and so we need not fear anything. Lord, thank you that your spirit is at work in us. We pray, Father, that your spirit would move us to pray and to proclaim your son more and more, Lord. And we ask, Father, that as we do so, we would not grow weary, that we would not grow tired, that we would not fall back, but that we would resist, we would stand firm, that we would hold the line, Lord. Please give us grace and strength to do that, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.